This is Jay from Jay's Politics Blog Podcast, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Network. We the people. We the people of the United States. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in the city of Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States. Over the next four months, they would debate, discuss, argue, and refine the first document of its kind in all of history, an attempt to show that men can rule themselves by law. This is the story of those men and those times. This is Constitution Thursday, a time we set aside to read, discuss, study, debate, and learn about the Constitution of the United States, what it meant when it was written, why it was written that way, what it means now, and how it affects our lives each and every day. Here's how you can participate. The text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 565-3283. The email address is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And on the web and social media, just search for Constitution Thursday. And I know the sense of helplessness that people feel. I know the urge to arm yourself, because that's what I did. I was trained in firearms. I'd walk to the hospital when my husband was sick. I carried a concealed weapon. I made the determination that if somebody was going to try to take me out, I was going to take them with me. If I could have gotten 51 votes in the Senate of the United States for an outright ban, picking up every one of them, Mr. and Mrs. America, turn them all in, I would have done it. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. As we take a look, hopefully dispassionately, at the facts and issues involved with the arguments over gun control in the wake of yet another school shooting. I'm Dave Bowman, and this is Plausibly Live, the Dave Bowman Show. It's Constitution Thursday. Glad you're with us for a live Broadcast. I do apologize for being late. We were supposed to do this at 1 o'clock. It's now 2.10. Had all kinds of technical issues this morning with, uh, well, it started with snow. <laughs> we, had, we had a, I don't know, I guess it's an inch of snow, but it doesn't look like an inch of snow to me, uh, worth of snow that shut down everything. The schools were closed. So Ben ends up with a snow day and everything is closed. And I'm looking at my phone and I'm thinking, well, it's probably the right thing to do. In fact, I canceled two business meetings today because I'm looking at my phone and it says temperatures minus one. The roads are frozen. I live on the top of a hill or top of a ridge thinking I don't really want to drive down that. But it took me about an hour to realize that Ben had changed the settings of my phone to centigrade and that it was 35, 36 degrees out and all the ice was melting and everything was fine. But by the time I realized that, 
all the meetings were passed and here we are. And so then we had some internet issues and then I had a sound problem. I don't know what my sound just went away on the computer and I have no idea why. I still don't know why. Um, it's windows. So you know what the solution to a windows problem is, right? Reboot, control, alt, delete, control, alt, delete. So I rebooted three times and finally it just, uh, decided to come back. So here we are. Hopefully this will go. Uh, the other thing I don't like, um, YouTube will no longer allow you to edit videos. So there's five minutes at the start of this video of just me in frustration, pounding on things, trying to get sound to work. So apologize for that. But thanks to YouTube, we can't edit the videos anymore. So there you go. That's the way the cookie crumbles. And I happen to have a cookie right here. My wife bought cookies today when she went to the store because it's good to go. Once again, a school shooting occurs and the national debate becomes not necessarily what do we do about it, but it becomes over whose fault is it and why. And it really becomes the gun. I mean, look, I'm obviously on the conservative right. I do try to do Constitution Thursday fairly dispassionately. So, But one would have to be blind not to accept the argument, not to accept the reality that the argument literally becomes gun versus person. Whose fault is it? Is it the person's fault because he's the one that pulled the trigger or is it the gun's fault because the person managed to get the gun legally or otherwise? And we go through this argument every single time. And the problem with it is, of course, that this particular argument is, in my view, unresolvable. Okay, let me rephrase that. It is resolvable, but nobody's going to like how it gets resolved. If you were to get your way in this debate, it's not going to it's not going to really solve the problem. Moreover, it blinds us to the ideas and consideration of other alternatives for how to do things that might actually contribute to a program that could stop some of the things that are happening. The argument is framed in words that people are, they use, but sometimes I think they don't really understand the words. Rights, fundamental rights, unalienable rights, uh, Supreme Court, Heller, McDonald, Khrushchev, uh, there's, uh, there's presser. There are arguments here that are made, used by both sides, that are incomplete. We latch on to one sentence or one fact from a from a from a historical event and we refuse to accept it. Both sides refuse to accept it in the context in which it occurs and the context of its entirety. It, it it's not unlike my experience as a pastor with people who will pick one Bible verse and that becomes their entire comprehension of whatever faith it is that they adhere to is is all in con, consumed in that one sentence or those two or three sentences maybe even a paragraph without the context of the rest of it uh, a great example from american history ask a hundred americans on the street who freed the slaves if you get a hundred answers uh, i'm i'm gonna stipulate that probably 50% of those answers are going to be, huh, or what, or I don't know. But if you got 100 answers, 
99 of them would be Abraham Lincoln. The other one might be, you know, the Union Army or something along those lines. Very few people, and I've listened to Congress people a few years ago, Nancy Pelosi, talking about executive orders and the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order that freed the slaves. That told me two things. One, that Nancy Pelosi didn't know what she was talking about. But number two, what it it really told me is she'd never actually read it. Anybody that's actually read the Emancipation Proclamation knows that it does one thing, specifically one thing that it does not do, which is free the slaves. It declares them henceforth and forever free in states that remain in rebellion after January 1st, 1863. In other words, in places that the Union had no control over and no, no ability to enforce, those are free. It said it, but it didn't make it so. In fact, what makes it so comes later with the passage of the 13th Amendment by the Constitution. Remember, executive orders can be revoked. So if you write an executive order freeing the slaves, the next guy comes in and says, we're doing away with that one. Right? I mean, that's what we're arguing about right now in Washington, D.C. This is a good example of people grasping onto a historical fact, Oid, and basing their entire worldview upon that. That becomes problematic. When you get into gun control, you have this same kind of problem. On the left, you have uh, some, some, you have two Supreme Court rulings in, in particular. You have Khrushchev and you have uh, Presser, in which the court established that certain things were so. On the right, you have Heller and McDonald. But again, neither side is taking the entirety of the rulings. They pick the pieces that they like, they take the pieces that they want, and they leave the rest. It's like your buffet, your salad bar, as Egg Shen once said in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. It's like your salad bar. You take the parts you like, you leave the rest, and you go on your way. But you can't do that. You cannot just pick and choose the parts you want. And I think that because we do that, it contributes to this overall argument. It really does. It limits the argument to well-established positions. Let's categorize those decisions. If you're on the left, you want guns eliminated. If you're on the right, you want your fundamental rights to have guns, and that's it. And meantime, people talk about, well, we got to find common ground. Where's the common ground between those two positions? What, what, if you're on the right, what are you willing to give up to get to common ground? And if you're on the left, what are you willing to give up to get to that common ground in the middle? What, there, there isn't any. There isn't any. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Neither side, because of their entrenched positions and their unwillingness to accept that their positions aren't necessarily, aren't necessarily absolutely accurate, Neither side is willing to to give an inch. And in the world of Supreme Court decisions, something to keep in mind, in the world of the Supreme Court, public opinion plays a huge role. And like it or not, probably 40% of the country believes that gun rights are absolute, unalienable, or fundamental. Probably 40% believes that guns should be taken away. And the rest are kind of in that middle section there. And so how public opinion flows 
influences the Supreme Court. It shouldn't, but it does. It, it always has. In reverse, Supreme Court decisions can also play a role in influencing public opinion. So if the Supreme Court says this is the way it is, then sometimes the opinion of the public goes, yeah, that makes sense. And they go on their way. Brown versus Board of Education did away with discrimination in the school district. And 10 years later, Congress, pushed by the public, said, I guess we need a Civil Rights Act to put some teeth into that. It's not all that unusual. Uh, In the previous example, as I was talking about, where public opinion pushes the Supreme Court, you have uh, marriage rights, fundamental marriage rights. Uh, That was pushed to the Supreme Court primarily by public opinion. There was no great outcry in the Supreme Court or Congress for that, but public states arguing back and forth as to whether or not they should recognize each other's gay marriages and so forth, it pushed it into the realm of the court, and there you go. So it can work both ways. In the, in the area of gun rights, however, because there is limited casework, really only five maybe six, depending on how you want to look at it. But within the context of the argument about gun rights, really only four Supreme Court cases that actually address this and evenly split at that, you kind of have to go, well, do I just pick and choose the parts I like or do I move on to the whole thing? The history of gun control in the United States is very simple. We didn't have any. We, We just didn't. We did not believe in gun control. We didn't believe that citizens should be disarmed. Now, this is a historical position. Why? Because earlier in the history of the United States, we believed basically six things about firearms. Now, these are in no particular order. None is more important than the other. None is any less important than the other. We wanted to have a militia. We wanted to participate in law enforcement. We needed to deter our governments from becoming tyrannical. We had to repel invasions. We had to suppress insurrections, including slave revolts. And we wanted to facilitate a natural right, that's important, a natural right to self-defense. Now, it's perhaps that last one that really comes most into play, This because a natural right is a right given by the Creator, if you accept that, or by the simple fact that we exist— And natural rights can never be taken away. They aren't given to you by the government. They exist regardless of the government. And they cannot be subsumed by a government. And when they are subsumed by a government, you have a tyrannical government. We believe, as Americans, we founded our nation on the basis that we believe that there are unalienable rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Implying in that very sentence, then, therefore, that there are, in fact, additional natural rights, unalienable rights, which we have stated throughout our history. I know you on the left aren't going to like this, but we have stated throughout the history, facilitating a right to self-defense is a natural right. It always has been. It's always been accepted. It was accepted as so back in England, the old English times. It was placed into several of the state's constitutions prior to the revolution, and in fact, during the revolution, Vermont did so. And then, of course, with the establishment of the United States Constitution. After the Revolutionary War, and 
really into the end of the Civil War, it really wasn't an issue. Nobody really said, you should have a gun, you shouldn't have a gun. It never really was an issue. When we got into the post-Civil War era, however, some things happened in our country that caused people to be mm, concerned about who could and who could not have guns. Specifically, in the South, they were deeply concerned about former slaves having firearms. They weren't real excited about that, as you can, whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant, but you can certainly understand where former slave owners and former Southerners, well, current Southerners, would be a little uptight about former slaves being able to arm themselves. And this led to problems, as we've talked about uh, specifically in the incident that led up to Krushank, with uh, the attack on the African-American police force in Nolens, which led, of course, to a massacre where white Southern folks who supported the Democrat candidates were shooting at black Republicans who were trying to defend the government. This led, of course, to the Krushank decision, which was very specific in a Southern-dominated Supreme Court. It was very specific in the idea that, no, the Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government, not to the states. And therefore, we're not going to interfere with this. If the state of Louisiana wants to say that certain people cannot have firearms in our state, they're free to do so. This, by the way, was in keeping with, generally speaking, the court's rulings about the Bill of Rights and and incorporation up to that point. The 14th Amendment was still very new. In fact, it was so new, it was still shiny. Nobody knew exactly what it meant, what it did, other than make former slaves citizens. The concept of incorporation was well understood, but it was not accepted and certainly not put into practice as yet by the courts. And the states weren't going to line up and go, here, we self-incorporate the Bill of Rights against ourselves. They weren't going to do that. You continue to have these problems in the South. We talked a few months ago about the issues with the Confederate memorial statues being taken down. And we talked about Liberty Square and the fact that this was about the attempts by white Southerners to suppress, control, disenfranchise black Americans. And one of the ways that they did that was through the use of gun control. The one, one of the ways they did that was by passing laws that limited who could have guns and who could not have guns. And the, the United States Supreme Court, in two cases, 1860 or, uh, 1876 in Krushank, and then 10 years later in 1886 in a secondary case uh, called Presser, reiterated this, saying, nope. Bill of Rights does not apply. The Second Amendment does not apply to the state governments. It only applies to the federal government. And therefore, whammo, bammo, states can restrict whoever has guns. And this was the law of the land basically from 1876 on. Now, not a lot of Americans know that. Not a lot of Americans understand that from 1876 to 2008, the Supreme Court's position was you did not have an absolute right to have a gun. That the Second Amendment only applied to the federal Only the federal government could come in, not be able to come in and say, hand us your guns. Oddly enough, I'm not sure, based on what happened, I'm not necessarily sure that the far left understood that either. 
Because had they understood that, had the left of today understood that, you can imagine what would have happened. California certainly would have outlawed guns. Other states might have as well. There would have been a negative reaction to that, and there would have been a much earlier case than Heller and McDonald based on the 14th Amendment's uh, due process and equal protection. But the ruling of the court was that the Second Amendment didn't apply to the states, and therefore, up until the court decides that it did incorporate the Second Amendment, that was the law of the land. Some people have asked, well, how did they do all this if, you know, if, 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 if I have a right to a gun? Well, the way they did it was you didn't have a right to a gun. Whether you understood that or not was irrelevant. You didn't have one. Eventually, things happened. And as we've talked about in great detail in the past, Heller was a, a man in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. had a well-known gun ban, the handgun ban that was in place, and he sued saying that that was unconstitutional because it violated his Second Amendment rights, included amongst which was a natural right to self-defense in Washington, D.C., a very violent city. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. It's a beautiful city until you get off about two blocks from the mall. Once you get past that point and out of Georgetown, it's a hellhole, folks. I mean, it was. It might still be. I haven't been there since, well, I haven't been there since technically 2014, but... Uh, I'm on my 2014 street trip. I never got off the mall. So, uh, but I, I used to live in Fairfax, right outside of Washington D.C. I spent a lot of time there. It was a hellhole, folks. It, it, it's it's well, I mean, it, you could apply a Donald Trump word to to Washington D.C. outside of the mall area. Inside the mall area, they keep very tight control on things. There are a lot of, oddly enough, armed guards and heavy police presence that maintains a sense of order and. And a sense of, yay us. Get outside of that, totally different story. Heller felt uh, unsafe, and so he sued on the basis of the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment. And he won. In a 5-4 decision written by Antonin Scalia, the Heller decision essentially reaffirmed the fundamental right, the natural right, if you want to call it that, of self-defense. And to do so... We have established a Second Amendment, which allows you to have a gun in order to protect yourself, which makes sense. Now, a lot of people didn't like that. Certainly on the left, they didn't like that ruling. But uh, there's some there's some reasons for that that I want to get into a little bit later when I start sharing with you my opinion as opposed to the dispassionate facts here. The problem with the Heller decision, the problem with the Heller ruling, number one, is most conservatives haven't read it. They really haven't. I mean, it's a huge decision. I mean, it's, it's long. We read the parts that we like. You have a natural right to a, a firearm to provide for your self-defense. And we like that. Yay. What we didn't read was the parts where Justice Scalia outlines the fact that there are, in fact, reasonable limits on who can have a gun. We don't like that. We, don't, we, we, we almost never read that because were we to do so, we might be uncomfortable with some of the things that, that our, our hero, Justice Scalia, had to say about this. Justice Scalia, in the Heller decision, outlined five things that we need to keep in mind. Number one. 
the government may prohibit the carrying of concealed weapons. This is in the Heller decision, which reaffirmed the natural right to self-defense via the Second Amendment. Number two, government may restrict the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill. This is Antonin Scalia writing this, folks. This is not, this is not Elena Kagan. This is not, you know, this is not Thurgood Marshall. This is Antonin Scalia. Number three, government may forbid the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools or government buildings. Number four, government may impose conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. And five, government may prohibit the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. So Heller, it establishes this Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms as a natural right for self-defense, but it does provide, much like there are limits on free speech, it does provide at least five areas where the government can provide for gun control, if you will. We don't like to read that on the right. We don't, we don't pay any attention to that. We say, Heller, 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 and we leave out the parts where the government, where, where, where the conservative icon, Antonin Scalia, said, hey, there are reasonable limits here, however. We don't like to think in those terms, do we? The second problem with Heller was that it took place in Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. is not a, anybody? It's not a state. It's a federal federal jurisdiction area. Yes, it's a city, and it has its own city council, and it has its own police force and all those kinds of things, but it's still federal, meaning that at no point in Heller was the question whether or not can this be incorporated against the states? So even though Heller establishes this, it doesn't matter. It's still the Supreme Court's position at the end of Heller in 2008. It's still the position of the Supreme Court of the United States that the Second Amendment is not incorporated, and therefore states, I don't know, pick one, Illinois, can control and, in fact, ban firearms. And so two years later, you get the same lawyers who find a guy that's uh, McDonald. He's in Illinois, and he's got the same problem. His firearm has been banned, and he wants to protect himself. And so he files suit. The entire question of McDonald in 2010 isn't whether or not I have a right to this or a right to that. It's simply question. Is the Second Amendment incorporated against the states, yes or no? And, of course, the court rules again in 5-4 ruling that it is. Now, this is controversial because... It is, in effect, the Supreme Court reversing itself. The Supreme Court does reverse itself. Don't give me, don't think that they don't, because they do. They have uh, reversed themselves on the Fifth Amendment issues of taking. They've reversed themselves on First Amendment issues. They've, they've reversed themselves time and time again, based primarily upon what? Public opinion and the societal changes in America. Things change. Once upon a time, a court ruled that Dred Scott had no right and no black man had a right to be a citizen. You wouldn't find a court ruling on that today. Now, they didn't have to reverse that ruling because of the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment, but they would if, it, if, if such a case ever prevented, presented itself or had ever presented itself. But now the Supreme Court was reversing itself in a 5-4 ruling and incorporating, as Justice Roberts wrote, incorporating the Second Amendment against the states. Within the constraints of Heller, within those guidelines, those five conditions, the Second Amendment was now 
incorporated against the state. So now the state of California, the state of Illinois, could not ban your right to have a gun for self-defense. However, those five conditions still remain. Whether or not you can carry it concealed, whether you're a felon or mentally ill, sensitive places, conditions and qualifications on sales, and dangerous and unusual weapons. Well, I think if we looked at that, I, I would you, as a conservative, dangerous and unusual weapons is kind of a broad phrase, isn't it? Unusual, I can certainly agree with. I mean, I don't need a bazooka. You don't need a, a recoilless rifle, uh, anti-tank gun. I don't need a 105 millimeter howitzer that would certainly be you know an unusual weapon but when you get into this dangerous question now we're into slippery slopes aren't we because who defines what's dangerous is dangerous defined as lethal or is dangerous defined as scary it's an assault rifle it's scary kind of approach to things you start getting into areas here that make both sides a little uncomfortable you can't ban my weapon, but if it's dangerous, maybe the government can, maybe they can't. They may prohibit the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons, but is the carrying of that the same thing as ownership of it? Is it as the same thing as using it for my defense? You get into questions that the court hasn't really answered and the question that the court really hasn't addressed as yet. Although McDonald incorporates it, under the conditions of Heller, it still leaves a lot of questions open, doesn't it? It still leaves a lot of areas for debate. It's been a lot of years in California. When you start looking at those five conditions, for those of you that listen in California, can you start to see where some of this has come into play in the past you know, few years? Uh, we had the famous ghost gun incident with, with Kevin DeLeon. He decided that those were dangerous and unusual weapons. Is he wrong? You don't agree with him. I get that. We don't agree with him. But is he wrong that they are dangerous and unusual weapons? The conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms we've seen in states where gun dealers have essentially been driven out of business. Are those conditions allowable by the courts? The Supreme Court hasn't been all that willing to take them up, meaning that by allowing them to stand, in essence, they are controlling things without really saying anything. Then you get into the you know, sensitive places, schools, government buildings, and of course schools is a big argument now because now the president says he wants to, to arm volunteer teachers. Um, I read another person last night calling for the hiring of homeless veterans, unemployed veterans. To, to do this. Well, what if your state or jurisdiction bans guns in schools? According to Justice Scalia, they may be able to do that. They can do that. And so how do you get around that little argument? How do you get into that area of all of this? The problems with both sides' arguments is that there are, there are dangers involved here. For both sides, you have to look at the motivations of each side and you have to understand or at least try to understand what each side is really about. It's easy to say 
to assign to the other side their motivations. It's easier for me to say that leftists believe this, think this, and do this, and, it, and they do the same thing. All, all conservatives, all rightists think this way and mean this thing. And, of course, everybody's immediate reaction to that is, well, that's not what I mean. What you're saying is wrong. What you're saying is not what I mean. But nobody ever takes the time to say, okay, well, what do you mean then? What, what exactly is your motivation in all of this? We, we have the position of the left, which is we want to do away with all guns. I mean, here, Di-Fi, Diane Feinstein, at the beginning of the show, talk about the fact that if she could have gotten 51 votes, she would have taken every gun and every person in the country. So you can't say that there aren't people who don't think that way. Why do you think that way? Do you really believe that seizing everyone's guns would solve the problem? Do you really believe that? Now, again, a, a leftist may say to you, and I wouldn't want to make a leftist argument for them because I may not do it justice, but many of them would say, well, they did it in Australia and everything's fine and peachy in Australia now. To which a rightist would, would reply, well, in Switzerland or Israel, they have guns everywhere and they don't have these problems either. So which solution is the correct one? You know, I mean, you're dealing with countries that don't have a lot of people. Australia is not, you know, that big. And in, in, I mean, it's huge landmass, but population wise, it really isn't. Same with Switzerland and Israel. You then also have the issues of, you know, Israel is basically everybody's in the army. So and, and they got to be able to, you know, get called up literally instantaneously. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel or not, but you literally drive across Israel east to west in some places, in about 10 minutes. If the army can't respond really quickly, it's a problem. So, you know, you, you, need, to be, you need to be prepared for those kinds of things. Switzerland's its own little world. I don't even know why we bring that up. I mean, Switzerland is, they're weird. But they make good chocolate. At any rate, which, which answer is right? You don't know. You can't prove one way or the other that either answer is better than the other answer or more applicable. You can't show me any definitive evidence that one solution will work better than the other solution. You can claim it, you can say it, but without actual, you know, A-B testing, how would you know? You don't, because you have essentially equally balanced arguments here. But you get back to the motivation of this question, and that's where I think you start to get into some real questions here. Why do you want all firearms removed? Why do you think you should be able to have any and every arm that there is? Why do you think everybody should be able to have whatever arms that there are? And when you, when you delve into the question that way, you might begin to see some things a little bit differently. I think, and I can only speak, you know, legitimately, I can only speak for the right because that's where I am. This is a fundamental right as confirmed by the court via McDonald and Heller. It is a natural right that is an unalienable right to self-defense. Well, when it comes to my self-defense, who decides what's best for my self-defense, my situation, my, my needs? Who decides that? Because I am on the right... And because I have libertarian leanings, I believe very much in self-determination, which is what liberty is. And so, be that being that way, I decide those things, not you. You don't get to decide them for me. 
any more than you get to decide for me what kind of medical treatment I should have or what I should have for dinner or what I should be able to read or say or or whatever. We object strenuously to those kinds of things. And so when it comes to my self-defense and my position and my needs, it is my natural right. Consequently, I get to decide that. And if I decide that I need a 45 caliber 1911 pistol, then that's my decision. If I decide I need an AR-15, that's my decision. The gun is not illegal. Therefore, I can decide for myself what I need on the basis of this natural right to self-defense. You get into the argument then about, you know, well, why do you need to be defended? What difference does it make? I, I, I get tired of the argument about, you know, tyrannical government. Well, you're not going to overthrow the army. I'm not trying to throw, throw the army. The army is not the problem. I've said this for years. The army isn't breaking down people's doors and violating their Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights. It's not the army doing that. But it is the government, isn't it? Food for thought, bon appetit. Interesting that it's, you know, when you look at who supports what, it starts to take on really weird shapes and colors, doesn't it? When you think about it in those terms. On the left, the only thing I can come up with, and I spent a lot of time working on this over the past few days, and I've talked to a couple of people about it, there's something that I noticed, and that was in this reading and my readings and uh, my preparation for this. And I caveat all this again by saying I am not anti-police. I have some real issues with the way we do policing in this country. I really do. But I am not anti-police officer. My brother's a police officer, or was. He's retired now. I know many police officers, and I know most of them are honorable people. The unfortunate truth is, the unfortunate reality is, I also read every day cases about officers who are not honorable and who either don't understand the Constitution or just don't care. I'm not sure what the answer is. When I started looking at this, and I realized that throughout our history, this natural right to self-defense is an individual right. It is a personable right. It is me and you deciding for myself what is my right to self-defense. And I began to realize that there has been a change in humanity and particularly in America. If my right to self-defense, and the reasons that I have this natural right to, to a gun, if you go back to that, was uh, to do things, you know, like, like establishing uh, self-defense. What was the other one? Uh, gun, you know, not, uh, not necessarily guns, but the, the repelling invasions, suppressing insurrections. And we've had that in the past, you know, the, the, the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion the Civil War, deterring a tyrannical government. But then there was the other two things, organizing the militia system and participating in law enforcement. See, originally, law enforcement was conducted not by professional police departments, but by the citizenry themselves. They would be deputized by the sheriff who was elected, and they would go out and conduct the policing. 
originally we had militia systems. We did have an army, but it was very small, very tiny, and we relied upon the militia systems that were trained to government standards. The government said, okay, this your militia has to have these kind of officers appointed by your governor, has to be trained in this way. And eventually what we found with the militia system was that the problem with the militia was it was full of citizens who were self-thinking and didn't always want to do what the government wanted it to do. We particularly discovered this during the Spanish-American War and the, the Philippine insurrection following that. And this upset the government to the point where they did away with the militia system and replaced that with the army system that we have today, the, the standing army and the National Guard, which doesn't answer necessarily to the governor. I mean, it kind of does, but then it gets federalized, and who do they answer to? Once they federalize it, who do they answer to? You're in the army now. You're not working for your governor anymore. In the case of policing, we had the sheriffs who were elected. People went out. They were deputized. They went out, and they did their thing. In the city of Boston in the 1830s, the merchants, Boston was a rough city. The merchants would hire people to police the waterfront and guard their properties and guard their businesses and that sort of thing. And of course, the people that they hired had to be rough too. So where do you find rough people to do that? And so they tended to be, you know, bad people. Eventually, the merchants decided that this was getting too expensive. And so they convinced the city of Boston to pay for them on the basis that, well, they're maintaining the public order and it's good for everybody, so everybody should pay for it. And so all of a sudden, the Boston Police Department was formed and, and paid for by the city of Boston, but it was basically the same bad people, the same rough people doing the same job. And for many, many years, well into the 1930s, Police departments were not well regarded around the country. Sheriffs were because they were elected. Posses, posse comitatus was because those were citizens deputized to carry out arms. But police departments really had kind of a bad reputation because they weren't seen as mm, the best of citizens. And they were seen as people who were trying to enforce the government's will to deny the citizens their, their rights and their, their livings. And in fact, this is kind of what happened. And then eventually you get to something called the Volstead Act, which is prohibition. Alcohol is outlawed in the United States. And you would have thought this would have solved all the problems, right? Alcohol's a problem, said one side. Okay, said one side. We'll go along with you on this one. Let's ban alcohol. And all of a sudden, we had more problems and more violence and more alcohol than we knew what to do with. And the police, the various police departments throughout the country, were one of the biggest part of the problems. Because they, they were taking bribes, they were taking money, they were, taking, they were guarding the, the, the moonshiners, they were helping. And we had a big investigation. President Hoover instituted something called the Wickersham Report, the commission, and at the end of, the, of his term in office, they issued the report that basically said, we got a huge problem in this country, which is that, uh, well, it's, it's a combination of people like to drink and the police are helping that. And so the reaction to this was, well, let's just uh, undo prohibition and that'll solve the problem. 
Now, again, through the years, policing has become more professional. I will grant you that. But there still remains a fundamental issue with it. Compared to the idea of me protecting myself, by having these massive police forces, do you know there are 40,000 officers in the New York City Police Department? That's, a, that's, a, that's two divisions of Army troops, if you want to look at it that way. These police departments have become massive. They have become the pointy end of the government stick. But what's written on virtually every one of their, their shields and their cars? What's the, what's the wordage? To protect and serve. The protection element has removed the necessity for the person, the individual, to protect himself and placed it corporately on the government. And so the thought process may very well be, if the police are there to protect you, why do you need a gun? It could be as simple as that. And if it is, well, then how do we have a debate about the fact that the police really aren't necessarily there. I know it says to protect and serve, but I used to live in West Modesto, and I called the police one day for a, 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 a problem in the street that should have been responded to, and you know how many cops responded and how fast? None, and I'm still waiting. And the next time it happened, I called the chief, because I happened to have the chief's number. We were reasonable friends, and Lo and behold, people responded. Shouldn't have to be that way, though, should it? If it's really about protection. But if the mindset is, if in the heads we're saying, well, that's my protection, why do I need a gun? It could be as simple as a different viewpoint of how that fundamental right to protection is being executed. And it comes down to, well, I'm an individual, or I'm a society. The libertarian believes in individualism. He believes, he or she believes in self-determination. Whereas the societal person, the socialist, not in the political sense, but the person who believes in a societal responsibility doesn't believe that. They believe in banding together and doing it, doing it that way. Well, you can see where those two ideologies are going to have a problem meshing together. The problem then becomes, well, who's in, whose ideas get taken here? How do we take this back to the courts? How do, we, how do we get a definitive decision on this, what is and what isn't legal? Every time a state, a municipality, proposes a gun limitation, they face the possibility of legal action from the, the gun rights folks. And that gets expensive. Some states can afford it. California clearly can't. California doesn't care how much money they spend going to court over gun restrictions. Other states may not see it that way. The other problem that you have for both sides is, what if you get all this way to the Supreme Court and you lose? Right now, gun control advocates are, are not happy with Heller and McDonald. They lost. They thought they would win in McDonald, but they didn't. What happens if they get another case up there and the Supreme Court finds that restrictions aren't, any, aren't valid? or that they are valid. Both sides take a huge risk 
running this to the court. And so they're not necessarily as willing as we might think they are to do so because there are problems there, which leaves us back to the original question of what what are the reasonable options here for stopping mass shootings and mass crimes? And that's outside the purview of the Second Amendment and the Constitution and Constitution Thursday. But if we start thinking of it in those terms, okay, here's what the Constitution has said, and here's where we are constitutionally with this, this balanced position in which fundamental rights are essentially balanced by restrictions on those rights already, so neither side is going to get what they want. If you're a gun control advocate, you're not going to eliminate guns. And if you are a gun rights advocate, you're not going to get away from the fact that there are reasonable restrictions on that. Sorry, you're just not going to. So the solution must lay outside of that. And that really becomes the question, doesn't it? Where do we find that outside solution that isn't infringing on either side? We the people. Good luck with that, because that's not... uh, that's not necessarily going to be as easy to find as we think it are. And I pushed the wrong button. Sorry. You got a comment, question? Dave at the Dave Bowman Show.com or just go to Facebook.com slash the Dave Bowman Show. I don't have the answer, folks. I have some ideas. But again, this is Constitution Thursday. Not a time for really bouncing those out there. What do you think? 565 Dave 209 565 3283 telephone and text. Dave at the Dave Bowman Show.com. See you next time for Constitution Thursday. Constitution Thursday is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright 2018, all rights reserved. For more information or to hear past shows, log on to ConstitutionThursday.com or Facebook.com slash Constitution Thursday. 